Hey everyone, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is Carol Ann Flood, and I'm the worship director here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our mission is simple, to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus your whole life, or your journey has just begun, we hope that this message will help you draw near to the person of Jesus, be challenged and encouraged by His Word, and be moved to action. We hope these next few moments are a blessing to you and equip you to see who God really is and who you are in Him. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you and be back with you again as we start off this brand new series at all four churches in our Zero Collective Network. We're going to take some time over the next uh, few weeks and we're just going to talk about the gospel message and how messy and complicated and beautiful it is to actually live that message out in our lives as followers of Jesus. So if you're joining us online as well, uh, welcome. It's great to have you with us as we just kick off this and begin. So I'll start us out this way. I want to introduce you to someone. If you've never uh, seen this picture before, this is Sheila Sloan. She made huge headlines last year in the UK. Has anybody here ever seen her picture or heard of her? Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, Sheila Siloan, um, huge headlines, dominated the news cycle for quite a while in the UK uh, earlier this past year in 2022. She lived alone by herself in a flat in South London, very highly populated area. And what made headlines is the fact that sometime in late 2019, probably just a, a, a few months before the pandemic shook the entire world, Sheila Siloan died in her apartment flat. Now, that wouldn't be, you know, huge news in and of itself if someone died alone in their apartment flat, but what made such huge headlines is that her body was not found until February of this past year, 2022. She literally laid dead in her apartment, very crowded area of South London, very crowded apartment building for over two years until someone finally discovered her. Here, I'll give you kind of the timeline. In September of 2019, her neighbors complained to Peabody Trust, which is the name of the landlord company that owned the apartment building, that there was this foul, horrible smell coming from her apartment and filling up the hallways. But what happened is the smell eventually faded and people kind of went back to business as usual. Um, then by March 2020, as the pandemic was hitting and the whole world was shutting down, the landlord began taking her rent out of what's called a universal credit account. So she no longer had to like actually actively make payments. It was just being taken out of an account where money already was uh, there. In June, her gas was shut off. And then in, in October of 2021, officers visited her home twice in one week to check on her welfare. They never made contact with her, but what they told her landlord company was she was safe and well. Now, what happened was eventually uh, the, mail, the mailbox was actually the key thing that finally discovered it. If you know, a lot of times apartment buildings, they'll have like this whole like line of mailboxes that's on the main floor. And her mailbox was just overflowing. Mail is just falling on the floor and it troubled the other residents so much. They finally made repeated phone calls and the police in February 22, uh, 2022 made their way into her apartment and finally found her. And the headlines, when you read them. The thing that people, that made such headlines is the question people were asking was how in the world could a human being, a human life, be so overlooked in a major city in 2022 with all the technology that we have, with all the ways that we're connected to one another in a crowded apartment building in, in 
the day and age we live in, how could a human being be so invisible, be so overlooked? How could that happen? The most general, recent general social survey revealed that over the last few years, the number of Americans, this is our country now, the number of Americans that say they have no close friends, nobody, nobody who they would you know, indicate was a close friend, has tripled. People are wondering why that is. Uh, Jenny Allen, this famous Christian author and writer, she wrote a book called Find Your People. She, she made a statement in that book about maybe why we're experiencing that. She said, we've replaced intrusive, real conversations with small talk, and we've substituted soul-bearing, deep, connected living with texts and a night out together every once in a while because the superficial stuff seems more manageable and less risky. Can anybody else relate to that? Yeah, I can relate to that. I, I will tell you, I, I feel like even just for myself, in the last few years, I, I feel like I have tons and tons of relationships, tons, tons and tons of people that I know on a, kind of a superficial level, and relationships matter to me a lot. But I would tell you, in the last few years, I feel like I have fewer and fewer people in which it feels really safe to really share things about my life. We're becoming more and more isolated. And maybe one of the reasons we're becoming more and more isolated is because we're becoming more and more divided. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, am I? We're, we're divided on every front. Politics, race, religion, uh, sexuality, gender, nationality. The list just goes on and on and on. We're divided, we're polarized in, in every way we possibly can be. And yet I would tell you this. I still believe that the gospel message of Jesus Christ as our Savior is the most powerful hope of the world that we have today. The gospel message has the power to unite and bring people together. It is the most potent, life-changing, and liberating message that the, in this world and is the message that the world needs most desperately right now. And I still believe that. And so the whole question of this series, why we're talking about it, is, is we're asking the question, how do we reclaim the gospel message as good news for all people? In, in a couple months, we're going to celebrate Christmas. The angels, when Jesus appeared first, they literally announced uh, in the heavens, um, this is good news causing great joy for all people. What, what does it mean that the gospel message is good news for everyone, for all people? And so what we're going to be doing in this series every week is we're going to be looking at the teachings of Jesus Jesus' actual words of what he said about his gospel message. And uh, we haven't done that in a little while. We've talked about the life of Jesus. We, we've looked at different stories and elements uh, in his life. But we're returning really and talking about specifically in this series, the teachings of Jesus. How did Jesus talk about his kingdom and the gospel message? And so we're going to begin today uh, with one of the most challenging parables that Jesus ever told. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable called The Rich Man and Lazarus. And let me just say this before we jump in and read that together. And we're going to read the entire parable in its entirety because I want you to really allow it to sink in. Jesus' parables were intended to kind of hold up a mirror to us so, we, so it confronts something about ourselves, if you allow it to. So his parables were not intended just to be something where it tell, you know, he tells the story and you go, oh, well, that's a really nice moral. That was sweet, wasn't it? It's, it's intended to be kind of a mirror where you look at it and you kind of see yourself a little bit in the characters. And so here's all I would invite you to do. Will you allow it to do that for you this morning? 
If, if you're here in the room, if you're watching online, will you allow this parable to hold up a mirror to you and will you allow it to confront something in your own life? So I think it has the power to do that still in our life today. And I think we need it. I think we need it. So let, let's look at this together. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Verse 19, it begins this way. Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went off to the place of the dead. There, in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. But the rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, deep breath. It's kind of, a, kind of a dark parable, isn't it? It contrasts these two people. Jesus juxtaposes these two individuals who are living in such completely, totally different worlds. One is rich. The other one is poor. One is dressed in luxurious garments. Purple and fine linen were, were rare in the ancient world. You had to be very wealthy to have those kind of garments. The other one was dressed in open sores. Well, one of them is eating and feasting every single day. The other one is starving to death. And then it says one of them, when, when he dies, he has a funeral. People care. He's buried properly. Uh, there's no mention of that with the other guy. And so we're left to kind of understand maybe he just died in the street and his body was sort of dealt with or cast aside by strangers. Now, what we oftentimes do with this parable, we look at these two individuals and we come to like kind of the obvious conclusion. And I'm guessing most of you are coming to that conclusion uh, watching this or, or, or kind of letting this parable take you in this morning that we oftentimes go, well, obviously the problem here was the rich man just wasn't generous enough. He, he wasn't charitable enough to Lazarus. He didn't, he didn't take care of his needs, right? That he was a have, he saw a had not, and he just didn't show mercy to him. And so that's what we, we take away from this parable. He just should have been kinder. He should have just been more merciful, more charitable, more generous with what he had. But I would tell you that is actually a very superficial kind of surface level understanding of what Jesus is trying to get at with this parable. I've said this before, 
But Jesus' parables are amazing because they have layer after layer after layer of depth and meaning. And in one sermon, you'll never even, you can, I can't possibly uncover every layer of it today. But, but if I could, I want to take you just a little bit deeper into what Jesus has to say. He's, he's not just saying, man, we should be more charitable to homeless and, and poor people. There, there's something a little bit deeper that he wants to get at. So let's take a deeper look. Uh, what's interesting about this passage is we automatically assume, man, this, he's got this poor man, Lazarus, right at his gate begging. Why in the world didn't he do more to help him? But in Jesus' day, actually, the rich man was doing something that was quite a bit more than what would have been expected for most people of his day. He's allowing a poor, leprous person to sit at his front gate of his house, this rich man is. Now, it says in verse 21 that the dogs were licking Lazarus's open sores. That's a clear reference to leprosy. Lepers in Jesus' day were the pariahs of his day, and lepers actually had to be isolated from all the rest of society. There were leper colonies where lepers, because they were ceremonially unclean and because people were so afraid of the disease of leprosy, they were isolated, they were quarantined, they were put in a separate community, and they were not allowed to live at anybody's front gate. So this rich man, in a sense, he's, he's allowing this leper, you know, to live at his front gate. He's not forcing them to be separated. And so this man is, is allowed to sit there where all the movers and the shakers of the world, the passersby, would have been very wealthy, undoubtedly. And so in a sense, you know, for the readers, the original readers of this parable, or the original hearers of it, this parable rather, they would have gone, wow, the rich man, actually, he, he was, he, to some degree, he was being merciful. In some ways, he was probably doing more than we do today, for homeless people. I'll show you what I mean. Raise your hand if right now you have a homeless guy living on your front porch. Okay, that would be nobody. If, if that's you, let us know in the comments on, online. Okay, so in actuality, this guy is actually doing more than we tend to do for rich, marginalized people, or for poor, marginalized people of our day. So there must be something else Jesus is getting at here. What, what else was the problem? Notice, the rich man only lets Lazarus as far as his front gate. He doesn't let him farther than that, does he? There's, there's a distance relationally. He doesn't want to know him. He doesn't want to have any kind of actual interaction with him. And this is, I think, maybe one of the layers of deeper truth Jesus is trying to get at with this parable. That isolated acts of charity that we do from a distance are easy but letting someone into our lives in a relationship where they can actually be redeemed by the gospel, where they can actually be transformed, is way harder. It's way harder. We'll do isolated acts of charity. We'll chuck some money at, at, at something, or we'll serve on a serving day one time. But to actually allow someone into our lives, to actually know them and to be with them personally, that's much, much harder to do. And so what I want to do here, I just want to reveal two main problems. We're just going to look at two main problems that the rich man had. Now, there's lots more to this parable, but for our purposes today, for the time that we have, these are, these are two main problems that the rich man had uh, that we see kind of in this parable. The first one is that he did not lack mercy as much as he lacked relationship. His main problem was not that he wasn't willing to be merciful or charitable, but he lacked 
a willingness to engage in a relationship with this guy. I'll, I'll let you sit at the front gate. That's fine. I'll even chuck some money at you once in a while. But we're not going to know each other. We're not going to be engaged in any kind of a relationship with one another. Notice this. Well, one of the most potent parts of this whole story for me is even in hell, the rich man, he's in hell. Lazarus is in heaven with Abraham. Notice even then the rich man doesn't address Lazarus directly. Did you catch that? He doesn't talk to him directly. He talks to, La- or he talks to Abraham and he says, Abraham, direct Lazarus to come. And, he, and what does he want him to do? Come serve me. He won't talk to him directly. He says, Abraham, tell Lazarus to come down here and dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony. And then he, okay, you're not going to do that. Okay, Abraham, tell Lazarus to go to my brothers then and warn them. Do you see it? He still thinks Lazarus is beneath him. He still thinks he's better than him. He still thinks, man, I, I don't have to engage this guy. I don't have to talk with him. I don't have to be in relationship with him at all. And therein lies the, the big problem. He sees Lazarus as my helper. Lazarus is here to serve me. Lazarus is here to do what I want him to do. He doesn't see him as a real person in a real relationship. Now compare that to the example of Jesus. We're in the gospel of Luke here. In the gospel of Luke, Jesus uh, is referred to by a nickname by the religious scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law You know what the nickname is in the Gospel of Luke that they give Jesus? Friend of sinners. That's what they call him. Friend of sinners. They don't call him advocate for sinners, although he did that. They don't call him the doctor for sinners, although he healed a bunch of people. They called him the friend of sinners. And they meant it as an insult. It represents relationship. And Jesus wore it like a badge of honor. What the Pharisees and the religious leaders were so angry about, actually, in Luke's gospel, was not that Jesus would serve sinners, not that he would, uh, you know, touch them, not that he would actually engage with them or heal them. Their issue with him is that he actually ate with them. That was, that was the issue. In Jesus' day, in his culture, eating with someone meant you were in fellowship with them, that you were in relationship with them, that you were treating them as an equal and that you were, you were engaging with them. That's what Jesus did, and that's what made them so angry. That's what made the the Pharisees and the religious leaders so angry. It's what earned him the title of, you know, friend of sinners. In fact, uh, Jesus, the last week of his life, when he goes into Jerusalem for the final time, he is staying at the home of a guy named Simon the leper. That's literally the guy's name, Simon the leper. Now, Jesus being... In contact with this guy, not only would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean, but then he goes into the most holy place in the Jewish religion on the most holy week of the Jewish calendar year. The message always from Jesus was he he wasn't just inviting the poor and the marginalized onto his turf. He got comfortable on theirs. That's who he is. In, In this parable... He's showing us that's not what the rich man was willing to do in this parable. Now, why does that matter? Why does that matter so much that we see that and we understand that? The reason is because for so many of us, if we want to follow Jesus' example, if we want to do what the rich man should have done, the solution is something that oftentimes we're just, we're just unwilling to do. 
And I'll, I'll own it. I'm, I'm unwilling to do it a lot of times. I find this really hard. It's way easier to just write a check or do some isolated act of charity. But what Jesus actually invites us to do is to rehumanize the other through relationship. He invites us to actually engage people in relationships, to rehumanize the other through actual relationships. That was the solution for the rich man's first problem, and it's what Jesus did all the time. Dehumanization is a slippery process. The reason is because we are hardwired to believe that human beings have dignity. We're just hardwired to believe that. That if, if there's a human being, that person should have a sense of dignity. In fact, that's why Sheila Salone lay in dead for over two years in her apartment. It's why it disturbs us so much. It why, it's why it made big headlines. It's because there's something about that that we just know, even if you're not a Christian, you know, like, that's just not right. That shouldn't be. Dehumanization is actually something that we have to do if we're going to do harm to another person. In order to do harm to someone, in order to overlook them, we actually have to come to a place where we dehumanize them, where we see them as less than us. Um, one of the most famous examples of this in our history is uh, what's known as the three-fifths clause. Uh, if you can go look it up if you've never heard about this, it's from the era of slavery. It was written into uh, a part of our constitution as a country where we let, how do you justify uh, white people being allowed to own black people uh, as property? and be able to treat them however they want. Well, you have to believe black people are not fully human. So there was something called the three-fifths clause that actually stated that black people were, were considered three-fifths human. It's dehumanization. That, that's how you can get that across. What, but I would say one of the most potent ways in our society, in our, in our time right now, that we dehumanize people is we, we uh, talk about issues. We dehumanize people by, by just turning them into issues and then just debating and arguing and fighting in greater and greater and greater ways in terms of issues. And we, and we do this with so many different things. We do it with race. We do it with poverty. We do it with national borders. We do it with sexuality. We do it with gender. Uh, go ahead, if you will, to that next line. These are important issues. They absolutely are important issues, and we should care about them in our day. But, but Jesus doesn't allow us to just stay there. He doesn't allow us to just talk about people in terms of issues. He always invites us. You see it in this parable. You see it over and over again in the example of Christ in the gospel of Luke. Jesus says, yeah, these are important issues, but way, way more than that. He says that these are important people. You have to see human beings. You have to rehumanize people. That, that's the way we can look at the gospel and it's, call for all of us. Yes, these are important issues, but first and foremost, we always have to look at important people. I would tell you, in our world today, the group I think we do this with the most, the, the, the group that we dehumanize the most and turn into an issue in our world today is the unborn. I am going to say something here, um, and I, I want you to hear this. This has been talked about and prayed about uh, between myself and Pastor David and the other leaders, uh, lead pastors of our Zero Collective churches. It's been talked about and prayed about this past week with our Zero Collective leadership team that oversees those four churches, which by the way is made up of men and women. 
and it's been prayed about and talked about with several different key leaders and people here at our church. Um, in a few weeks, you guys know this, in a few weeks, we're going to have the opportunity to head to the polls and vote a yes or no vote on something called Proposal 3. And um, I just want to say this, we don't normally address politics here as a church. In fact, if you're newer to Frontline, you're like, oh man, is this one of those churches that's just always getting up and talking about politics? Ask somebody who's been here for a while, you're going to hear, we, do, we don't do this. I don't stand up and make statements about you know, political issues that are, that are controversial of our day. And the reason I don't do that, the reason I haven't led us to do that as a church is because I, I want to value the gospel first. I want to put Christ first. And I want anybody to be able to come to Frontline and feel safe, no matter what side of the political spectrum they're on, to explore the person of Jesus. That's what matters to me. And I want you to hear that's what's going to continue to matter to me. So don't start to think, oh, okay, this is what we're going to do now, or this is the way it's going to go. No, I want this to continue to be a place where we, t we talk about, uh, this is a place for anybody to be able to explore the person of Jesus and feel safe to do that, no matter if you agree or disagree or what side of the political spectrum you come from. That's what we're about as a church. So after saying that, why, why would I say something about this? Why would we break kind of our normal routine and say something about this? The reason I would tell you is because as we've prayed about this, as we've talked about this as a team, and it has been a discernment process to even say something, what we've decided is, is that this specific proposal transcends just politics and political issues, and it it's, transcends to being a moral issue, I think the moral issue of our time and our day, and it, and it is a kingdom issue. And the reason it's a kingdom issue is because it deals with the very real human lives that are at stake that we can all too easily dehumanize. Now, um, to be fair, there are moral issues on both sides of the political spectrum. Okay, I, I don't think either party has all moral issues perfectly solved or figured out. But this particular issue has such an important uh, impact on people. And so I just want to say this. We believe, I believe, that people, human beings, have a soul. From the moment of conception, they have a soul. And that soul matters to God, and therefore it should matter to us. We are for life. We are for humanity. And we are for the church coming alongside women and children who are in tough situations and helping them find the way to the kingdom. There's a reason that abortion rates actually drop when, uh, when it's required that a woman would see an ultrasound before she makes the final ultimate decision to have an abortion. There are huge drops in abortion rates. And the reason for that is because it rehumanizes that issue, doesn't it? It, it makes this a person, a real life. And so... I, I will never tell you who to vote for. I'm never going to tell you, um, you know, what signs you should put in your front yard. But I, I will tell you this. Our family, my family and I, will be voting no on Prop 3 this week or this coming. And here is the reason. I'll, I'll tell you the reason. It's because, and, and I've, as I've talked with uh, several Christians even this week, knowing I was going to say this, I've discovered most... Um, most Christians haven't even really read the bill. There's so much on the news, so much advertising going on about it. 
And a lot of us just haven't even read it, don't even know what it is. So I would encourage you, go read it for yourself. Go discover what it says. Proposition 3 is the most permissive abortion policy of its kind in the world. You heard me correct. Not in the nation, not in the states, in the world. It's, it's kind of been billed as, you know, keeping abortion legal or reinstating Roe. That's, that's how it's being, you know, kind of pushed out there. But, you know, even during the era of Roe v. Wade, um, and we all lived in that period of time, there were lots and lots of laws and regulations that regulated things like um, late-term abortions, that regulated, uh, you know, who could do an abortion, when it could be done, you know, and, and what, and, and all those kinds of things. Those are all done away with under this bill. It is by far the most permissive. Now, I want to encourage you to go read, for, read it for yourself, but I would tell you this. There are... There are two victims, I believe, in whenever an abortion happens. One is the unborn child, but the other victim is a woman who has believed a lie or is believing a lie that this is the only option that she has. I was talking with one of my friends who tends to be more on uh, the other side, a good, strong Christian, but tends to be more on the other side of this issue. And I think her comment was fair. Sometimes we can also dehumanize women who find themselves in absolutely unthinkable situations and feel like there's no other option. So I, that's enough about that. As, as a man, uh, I'm never going to know what it's like to be pregnant and scared. But I want to say something. I want to talk directly to those of you in this room and those of you watching online. If you're a woman who has had an abortion, and I know you're here. I know some of you personally. I, I know some of what you think. I know some of what you carry. I just want to talk directly to you if you are a woman who's had an abortion or if you are a younger woman who maybe you don't think it now, but maybe at some point in your life, you're going to find yourself in a situation where you're considering it. I want you to hear this so loud and clear. More above everything else I've just said, I want you to hear this. You cannot possibly understand how loved you are by God. You matter to God, you matter to this church, and you matter to me personally. And I want you to think, I want you to know the gospel is bursting with hope and with restoration and with grace for you. So as a, as a church, we're more committed than ever. And I think in this next season that we're entering into in our, in our time that we're living in, I think we need to be more committed than we've been in the past to walking alongside women and families that are wrestling and being affected by this issue. And so uh, there's a QR code right here. You can see it is popping up online as well. I would encourage you to click on that QR code. It, it, it actually connects you to some of our resources, Cradles of Grace, which meets every Wednesday night here at Frontline. Um, Lighthouse for Teen Moms is also here. Hope Unexpected is, a, is really embraced by our churches on the south end of town as well. Um, Alpha Grand Rapids, our benevolence team also, uh, we want to help. We want to walk alongside you if you find yourself in a situation and you're struggling with this. Also, if you want to talk about this, <laughs> I can't imagine anybody would want to talk about this. Uh, our door is wide open. If you click on that QR code, there's a way to get in contact with us. If you want to know a little bit more about why we chose to do, say this, if you want to know about why we chose um, as a church you know, on this issue where, where we stand, or if you just want to talk about it and learn some more, we would love to connect with you. We'd love to interact with you and talk with you some more. But uh, I'm going to leave this up on the screen. We want to be in this 
game. We want to be in the trenches, not just talking about an issue, not just from a distance kind of saying, hey, we'll do some isolated acts of charity to speak to the issue that everyone's debating and arguing about. We want to walk with people. People. Because people are what the gospel is all about. Two uh, Wednesdays ago, I happened to be here and I stopped into light, uh, the uh, Cradles of Grace group. That, that group is, by the way, exploding and growing so fast here at Frontline. And I'm sorry if you were there, if, I, if it was weird that I was in the back just sort of watching this group. I, I'm, so, I'm sorry about that. But I, I sat there in the back of the room and I just watched from the back quietly as these moms uh, with their kids are coming in and they're connecting with one another and they're finding a sense of community with one another and they're finding a sense of support and, and they're, they're talking and, and they're relating and there's this space where they can actually, in our building, there's this space where they're able to connect and where they're able to find hope and find help. And I stood at the back of the room and the thought that just went through my mind was, now this is church. In fact, I would tell you, I think that's more church, what's happening on Wednesday nights than what we do oftentimes here on Sunday morning, because it is about people, people. Gospel is not about important issues. It's about important people. Okay, so that's prop three. That's that discussion. I told you the rich man had two main problems, right? So I want to tell you, this is the most important part of the sermon. And I know a lot of you, you're not going to hear anything else I said because of what I just said. I get that but I can't leave this on the table because the second main problem that the rich man had was that he believed he had no need for a savior. He believed a lie. The rich man believed a lie that he had no need for a savior. The key to understanding this entire parable and where I get that is from understanding the name Lazarus itself and what the name Lazarus means. As you know, this parable, the rich man and Lazarus, is the only parable of all the parables that Jesus tells. It's the only parable where Jesus actually gives a guy a name. Go read all the other parables. It's a farmer was doing this, or you know, a man had two sons, or you know, a woman lost a coin. I mean, it's, it's you know, no one's given a personal name except in this parable, Lazarus. Lazarus. So, of course, the name Lazarus is significant. In fact, I would tell you it's the key to understanding the main point, everything that Jesus is trying to get at. You know what the name Lazarus means? It means God is my helper. God is my savior. The rich man was not in hell because he wasn't generous enough or because he was rich and, and wasn't willing to share he was in hell because to him, Lazarus was his helper, right? Abraham, tell Lazarus to come here and serve me. For Lazarus, God was his helper, and that's the point. We can't do it on our own. It doesn't matter what cultural, socioeconomic, racial, political, uh, sexual, gender, what, whatever box or category you fit in, it doesn't matter. What matters the most is, is Jesus your savior? Is he your helper? Because none of us get there on our own. The rich man's deepest problem, it's, it's he was poorer than the poor man because he'd made a great life for himself and he'd isolated himself from his greatest need. And I would tell you, it's the greatest need of every single human being. 
and it's to be connected to the person of Jesus Christ. That's the hope we have. That's the message that our world needs so much. And that's the one name, the one banner that we can all be united under. Do you have that? Personally, do you know Jesus as your savior? Would you be able, as we're all gonna do someday, when, we, when you stand before your creator, when this life is over, to be able to say, I'm not standing here on my own merit, on my own good deeds, on my own generosity, on my own perfect opinions, on all the issues. I'm standing here as a sinner that's been saved by grace because Jesus was my helper. Jesus was my savior. Is that you? If not, make it right today. Today. Don't wait. Don't wait. I want to close this uh, sermon a little differently than we normally do. I want to invite Carol Ann Flood to, to come up here. Uh, Carol Ann serves as our worship director. You've been a part of Frontline. Carol Ann's been a part of things for so long, doing such a great job leading our team and leading us. I feel like it's, it's important, I think, that it's not just a male voice uh, that we hear and that, that closes this morning. And so I invited Carol Ann I, I, to just pray over us. I think it's important that we have a female voice also. Uh, speaking into this and praying over this. And so, Caroline, would you uh, just pray over us as we think about what we just talked about and as we think about the next few weeks? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this space. I thank you for this space that we can just sit with you. God, you are our helper. You are our defender. No matter what season we're walking through, no matter what tragedy, no matter what hardship, no matter what joy, you are with us. So Lord, I just pray a humility over this entire room over every person here, every person online, I just pray humility, Lord. As we hear a message like this, it's so easy to say, oh, I knew I was right. I knew I had it right all along, but Lord, none of us have it right unless we have you. Unless we have your gospel unless we have your salvation. So I pray for a humility, Lord, for a surrender this morning, for an openness in our heart to receive your word, for an openness in our posture of worship this morning. I thank you that you're a God of both truth and grace that you extend to us the promise that we are your masterpiece and you are our savior and you have prepared us for the good works that you've set for us so I thank you Lord I thank you for being present in this room I thank you for being alive Thank you for being the hope of the ages. 
We just love you, Jesus. We love you so much. Thank you. That's all we can say is thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would respond and worship right now, remain seated if you'd like or stand as we sing about our living hope. We hope this message encouraged you in seeing who God is and who you are in Him. If you want to take a next step, visit frontlinegr.com forward slash connect. We look forward to connecting with you there and we'll see you back here next week.